Well, good morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. We've been working our way through the book of 1 Peter. And we understand it's about the grace of God. We sung a little bit of that today. today. We mentioned it a few times uh, in our songs. We've come to a section here where the Apostle Peter seems to be, in my estimation, preparing for the next section that he's going to talk about, which is the major section on trials. You'll see in verse in verse 12, he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you, though some strange thing has happened unto you. We're going to be covering that next week, the trials of life. But in preparation of trials and suffering, Peter is now going to focus our attention um, once again on an inner act. Attitude that we must have in order to be prepared for suffering graciously. And that's why I've entitled our message this morning, Preparing Ourselves for Suffering Graciously. These people were scattered abroad because they were under persecution already. Um, They were scattered throughout five different regions. If you uh, read that, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And the reason for their scattering was because they were under persecution. And so he is writing to these, and no doubt this letter um, may have been read in small groups, may have been copied again and again and passed out to individual groups in order to help them to be sustained uh, through uh, their time of suffering and their time of dispersion, as it was called. But we see here... Uh, Peter focusing his attention, and once again, he has this way of bringing in Christ's example. He constantly has been, we've seen this already, two or three times where he's brought in Christ as an example. When he talked about the servants, he used Christ as an example. In other places, when he talked uh, in, in, in chapter 2, when he talked about uh, the, the growth that needs to take place, he used Christ there talked about him being the foundation. When it, we're talking about corporate growth, we're talking about a growth from a, uh, from a standpoint of a church, that Jesus Christ has to be the foundation of that growth if it's going to take place. So he, he, is able, he brings in uh, the Lord many times throughout his, his book. Um, and here again, uh, he does the same thing. So let's read chapter... 4 verses 1 through 11 this morning. For as much then as Christ had suffered, hath suffered for us in the, in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, uh, tongue twister there, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, 
speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have, your, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter here is encouraging and he's preparing these folks for a fiery trial that's about to come. Apparently, Peter knows more than maybe they do. Uh, One of the fiery trials that's going to come in particular was just a few years after this book was written. In 70 AD, Jerusalem was burned to the ground and the temple completely destroyed. So as far as any Christians that were around Jerusalem, now he's not writing specifically to that region, but he's writing to an an area that's uh, sort of north and west of Jerusalem, quite a ways. Um, But, I mean, I don't think Peter knew that that was going to (laughs) happen, that Jerusalem was going to burn to the ground uh, in 70 A.D. And this is probably around 64, 65 A.D. that he's writing here, in uh, in First Peter, but he he knows and he 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 knows these believers already are under persecution, and apparently he's anticipating that persecution increasing, and so he's preparing them. So for, my first point this morning is that Peter is trying to help these people and thus us <laughs> to correctly acquire a certain mindset. Correctly acquire our mindset. You see that in, uh, in verse 1. He makes reference to Christ who has suffered for us in the flesh. So again, using Christ as an example and how he was able to maintain during that time of suffering, there was an attitude that he had. The word that's used here, with the same mind, is the only time, well, there's one other time this word is used, but as far as other times where you see that same phrase, even if you turn back over to chapter 3 and look um, at the passage that we looked at last week, where he says to be of one mind, I'm looking for it and I can't find it, Um, okay, in verse 8, Finally, be all of one mind. He's not using the same exact phrase here, to be of the same mind. Matter of fact, the word mind is even different. It's a a slightly different uh, variation of that word mind. 
The only other time that we... so it, Let me tell you what it has to do with. It has to do with intentions. All right? It has to do with purpose. And so we, we have this um, one other time in the book of Hebrews, a very familiar passage to us in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. You don't even have to turn there. Most of you probably know this. Um, yeah, I have to turn there because I can't remember how it starts. <laughs> um, but most of us could quote this passage once, once I get it started. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Seeing then, oh, I'm sorry, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That word intents is the same word here for mind. Okay? So the intentions, the thoughts, the intentions of our heart. So the word of God is able to discern between the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And we understand how that is. When we read God's word and conviction is set in on us, <laughs> we understand that God's word is bringing to light the very intentions of our heart. A man by the name of Adam Clark, he's a commentator, a British Methodist from the late 1700s and into the early 1800s. Listen to what he says about this word. He says you know, about God's word doing this critiquing, judging. It is a critique of the propensities and suggestions of the heart. How many have felt this property of God's word where it has been faithfully preached? How often it has happened that a man has seen the whole of his character and some of the most private transactions of his life held up as is it were in public view by the preacher. Yet the parties absolutely unknown to each other. Some, thus exhibited, have supposed that their neighbors must have privately informed the preacher of their character and conduct. But no, it was the word of God, which by the direction and energy of the divine spirit, thus searched them out, and was a critical examiner of the propensities and suggestions of their heart, and had pursued them all through their public haunts and private ways, even genuine minister, every genuine minister of the gospel has witnessed such efforts as these under his ministry in repeated circumstances. And we, we, know, we know the experience of that. We know the experience of that when we're sitting in a, in a preaching service. We know the experience of the word of God doing this to our own lives when we're reading it for ourselves. I mean, in our daily reading, all of a sudden... You know, you've had an incident happen in your life, and now in your daily reading, and you pick up the Word of God, and you open it, and bam, it speaks right to that incident. And it's the Holy Spirit that's using the Word of God at that point to, to be the judge, to be the critic on your actions and your attitudes and the intentions of your very heart. We understand what that's like. Well, back here in our passage then, we see that the Lord had a purpose. He had an intention in mind in reference to his suffering. For as much then as Christ suffered for us 
in the flesh. Now you'll notice, let me just make one comment here about the word for us, the, the phrase for us. We understand that Christ suffered for us. Some of the older manuscripts don't have that phrase in there. And some of the other manuscripts not only have the word for us in there, but they also have the word for you in there instead of for us. So which is it of the three? Well, it probably is without that. Because if you even think about the context and what he's, what he's trying to do here, he is not really focusing his attention on the fact that Christ suffered vicariously, that is, on behalf of us. He's really focused on the attitude that Christ had when he was suffering. It's not that the older one is saying Christ didn't suffer for us. All right? It's that it's not focusing its attention. Peter's not focusing our attention on the fact that he suffered for us. He did that back in chapter 3 and verse 18. We know he suffered, and every one of the manuscripts has this, that he suffered the just for the unjust. So we can't say, well, they left it out because that's ambiguous. Now, why did Christ suffer? Well, no, it's not ambiguous. You just look back to the other chapter. We know why he suffered. But the intention of Peter here in this passage is not to bring out the fact that Christ suffered for us, but that he had a certain attitude when he suffered. And he's challenging us to have that same attitude, have that same purpose in mind. Matter of fact, we don't see it in the, in the English here, but in the Greek, you'll, you'll see that the word likewise, yourselves likewise, or you also is the idea. Those words in that phrase are at the beginning. And that when they do word, word order in Greek makes a difference, all right? Now, it doesn't always sound correct in the English when we translate it that way. That's why they don't put that in that word order. They put the verb first, arm yourselves. But really it is you also, yourselves likewise, okay, is the idea. That's first. Yourselves likewise with the same intentions, with the same purpose, arm yourselves. And the the verb is last. So the intention is that it's personal. That's why he puts the you yourselves first, yourselves also first. He's, He's really focusing in on Every individual has to have this kind of mindset, has to have the same intentions that our Lord had when he suffered on the cross in the flesh. So what was that mindset? That mindset was to do God's will, to accomplish God's purposes. And we have to have that same mindset. Remember, he's preparing us. To go into a time of difficulty, a time of suffering, whatever that might be. That might be, as our songwriter said, foes without and foes within, right? (laughs) There are sometimes foes in our very heart that betray us, our flesh. And when we go through a difficult time of suffering, in particular persecution, and in the outside circumstances is really what Peter is focusing here on, When the outside circumstances, the trials of life come in, we have to have the right mentality when we're going through that. And it's the mentality that the Lord had, that there's purposes behind it. It's God's will. And if it's God's will, how much easier it is for us to go through those sufferings when we know God has purposed this for us. So, 
we have to have those intentions. Each one of us individually have to have that type of attitude. So that's correctly acquiring our mindset. That's why I put it that way. Correctly acquiring our mindset. We need to have the right attitude as we head into a time of difficulty, a time of suffering. Now, if you were paying attention, and sometimes we don't when we're reading, but uh, I don't know, as I read this thing, when I began to study this passage in chapter 1, when I got to the end of chapter, verse 1 of chapter 4, I was a little puzzled, okay? Look what it says. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Now that's a little puzzling, is it not? I mean, we know what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, well, I broke my leg the other week and now I'm sinless perfection. <laughs> I can't sin anymore because I suffered. We know by experience it doesn't mean that. It kind of sounds like that's what it might mean, right? Some actually, this is one of those passages in First Peter that there's a lot of difference of opinions as, as to what is the meaning of this particular, what's Peter getting at, all right? It's not a matter of word order. It's not a matter of words. It's just a matter of what does he mean by what he's saying here. Some actually attribute the he that suffered in the flesh, that that refers to Christ. And then verse 2, he no longer should live the rest of his time in the will of flesh uh, to the lust of men, but to the will of God. All right, so they, they attribute that he to the Lord himself. And I think there's some problems with that viewpoint because we know that the Lord never even began to sin. So how does he stop from sinning? He never started. So there is some, you'd have to be able to answer some of these hard questions if you have that interpretation of it. Not most, most people don't take that interpretation. Most conservative commentators don't, but there are a few that do. But rather, I think it's this. Some actually, um, it, what, what, what it could mean is that the sufferer has suffered to the point of death, and now there is no possibility of sinning. Okay, that's a viable option of interpretation. You see, he has suffered in the flesh to the point of death, and so therefore there's no opportunity, so there's a stopping from any evil any sinful actions. It also could mean that the sufferer in his suffering for righteousness did not give back evil for evil. So he's suffering and he doesn't, in that suffering, sin in the sense that he doesn't give evil for evil. Remember the Lord in his own example back, we read, um, we covered it last week, um, that when the Lord didn't he didn't oh no it was two weeks ago when we covered the end of chapter two uh he did no sin the lord did no sin in chapter two verse 22 neither was guile found his mouth who when he was reviled so he's suffering he reviled not again and when he was and when he suffered he threatened not so it may have reference to that when we're going through that time of suffering that we aren't turning that around on our our persecutors, and doing and having evil intentions toward them and, the, and thus sinning. Okay, So it may have that. But I think 
it means this, and there's, there's probably other viewpoints other than these, but, uh, and I'm not the only one that thinks this, that, that there was a point in time, all right, there was a point in time, and, and li- the perfect tense is being used here, in, in, in addition to, uh, I believe, the past tense. So, what it means by the perfect tense being used here means that something happened in the past and now has continuing results. So, when it says that he has ceased from sin, so something has happened in the past that cut off that sin, that opportunity. There was a point in time at which the one who was suffering for a righteous cause came to know the end of the dominating power of sin in their lives. Came to know the end of the dominating power of sin in their lives. Now that doesn't mean that this person is never going to sin at all. Again, that's not the, that's not the thrust of this passage. But that the dominating power of sin no longer is controlling him. Okay? And he's come to that point prior to even the suffering. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, Paul says something very similar uh, in Romans that Peter is now focusing his attention on here in 1 Peter. Romans chapter 6, let's read down through this passage. It's a little lengthy, but I think it's important for us, and and it really speaks to this whole issue. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? Remember he said where sin abounded, verse 20 of the previous chapter, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. It much more abounds. All right, so let's sin a lot. So God's grace is a lot. Okay, that's the mentality that Paul is picking up here. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? Sin more. Because God's grace is going to abound. No. Don't think that. God forbid. I mean, don't you even think that. Three negatives in the Greek right there. The word God's not there, but three negatives are there. And so our translators say, well, well, that's just appeal. This is the, this is, that's appeal to the highest. God forbid you would think that's preposterous is the idea. Don't think that. That's a preposterous idea. How shall we that are dead to sin... Live any longer therein. Remember what Peter was saying? He has ceased from sin. He has not, he's not under the dominating power of sin again anymore. Know ye not that so many of us that were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Now, he's speaking there of spirit baptism. Okay? Spirit baptism he's talking about. He's talking about the Holy Spirit baptizing that believer into the body of Christ. Now, the reality of water baptism is the picture of that. So he goes on to talk about that picture. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, that's down in the water, <laughs> planted under the water. Then we might, all, um, 
then we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. And that's the point that Peter is making, I believe. For ye are not under law, but under grace. So, we've died to sin. And as we, when we come to know the Lord, and when we accept Him as Savior, this is the whole point at which uh, baptism comes in. It becomes the public testimony of what has transpired in the life of that person. That person has trusted Christ as their Savior. So therefore, that person now needs to publicly confess Christ and identify with his death, burial, and resurrection so that we died with him. And it's picturing us and our old man dying to sin. We died when Christ died. When he rose, we also rose. And we can live now unto God. And so baptism is a command of Scripture. I mean, this is, I mean, back then, baptism was going on Anybody that had a group of people and they wanted to follow that person, they'd get baptized by that person and they were part of that group. The Lord heightens that whole, that whole cultural thing to a, a spiritual reality that we still carry on today. That's why we are Baptists, right? We believe that a person, once he trusts Christ as Savior that he needs to, he or she needs to identify with the body of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the whole point of baptism. It's not anything magical. Uh, we, we didn't discuss it, but in 1 Peter chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, those, those difficult passages there where it talks about uh, the figure uh, of Noah in going into the ark with those of his relatives, his wife and his three sons and their daughters, the eight that were saved through the water. Really, it was the water that boistered them up, but it was the ark that saved them. Christ really is a picture of the... So it's not the water that saved them, right? Just like baptism doesn't save either. So we don't believe in baptismal regeneration. There's many groups that believe that. I believe you have to be baptized in order to have your sins cleansed. And that really doesn't even make sense. He even talks about that. It's not the putting away the filth of the flesh. Right? But it's an answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, baptism is just a picture of the reality of what's already transpired in the heart. 
The thief on the cross was never baptized, but he was with Jesus in paradise the next day. No, today. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. All right? He didn't have an opportunity to go underneath the waters of baptism. How was how he saved then if baptismal regeneration is true? Well, it's not true. That's the point. The point is he put his faith and trust in Christ alone, and that was enough. He didn't have to do any ritual. He didn't have to go through any, uh, any uh, act of obedient, obedience. It was faith alone that saved. But we often call baptism, right, the first step of obedience for the Christian. And I know, and I don't know that that's the case in, in, our, in our church here, but there are folks in like larger churches where young people have trusted Christ as Savior and they never have gotten baptized. And for whatever reason, whether the parents didn't teach them what it was all about or they didn't think it was an important thing at that point and they... I mean, it's way up into their their teens and and later on into their 20s, and they've never identified with the body of Christ. That's a travesty when that happens because they've not followed the obedience in obedience to what God's word has said, and they they really need to do that. Again, I don't know the condition of anybody here this morning in regards to that, but if you've never been baptized and you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's your first step of obeying what God has commanded for us. All right, back to our passage in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4 again. So the fact that we have ceased from sin, that person who suffered in the flesh, there was a time in the past where sin's domination over their life was broken. And so therefore, they they have ceased, they have stopped from evil. Again, not that he's the sinless perfection here, but the domination effect uh, is no longer uh, controlling that person's life. So, in order that then, verse 2, he would no longer live then the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. So we've come to our second point. We need to properly assess our motives. Properly assess our motives, and he really gives a time. There's a time element involved in in the, the motivations that he's talking about here. You'll notice the time element. There is the time past in verse three, and then later on, there's the time present um, in verse four, wherein they think it strange that you run not. This is presently those that are watching your life. And that you're not engaging in these things. We'll talk about that in a second. But verse 4 really is about a time present. And then there's a time future. Verse 5. Who shall give an account to him? That's future. There's a future judgment. So there's a motivation here. For us to live to please God even in the midst of difficulty and suffering. What's the motivation for us to do that? Well, first of all, there's three. The motivation of their past actions. Notice that it was in the, we, um, there's a contrast here. The contrast is that of, and we've heard this phrase before, right? There are two choices on the shelf. I think Ken Collier from the wilds is actually the one who coined this phrase, though many have used it. You You almost say it without even thinking. Now, two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. And that's what's involved here. 
Notice how that, that shows up in verse 2. That we know that he should no longer live the rest of his time, or his is in italics there, the rest of time, in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. What's our motivation? Our motivation, if it's selfish, all right, then we're going to continue in that desires, those strong desires that men have. But if our motivation is the will of God, all right, the pleasing God, then that, that takes it another that takes it a different level. No longer is it selfishness, right? It's looking to God and saying, God, what do you want of my life? What do you want me to do? Not what do I want to do with my life? So there is that motivation then of past actions. And some of some of us in this room perhaps may be able to understand this passage even more clearly because of our past experience. And some of us may not be able to understand it completely clear because our experience has not been this. But he points to this, the will of the Gentiles, those heathen nations. And we folks are living, even though we have on our coin in God we trust, we are living in a heathen nation. Mark it down. It has gotten worse and worse and it continues to get worse and it won't get any better and you would almost think that peter has you know by a time machine gone forward and landed in some apartment complex near a college and it's the weekend and here's what he says those that walk when we walked in lasciviousness what is lasciviousness? It, is, it refers to actions that excite disgust and shock public decency. It's a strong word. Not a word we use today, lasciviousness, right? But it's a very strong word in the Greek. Then there's the word lust. These are, it goes beyond the sensual, sexual desires to just any strong desires that are outside God's will. We walked. This is the way we conducted our life, right? That's the idea of walked. We've lived. We lived this way. And some of us know what this is. We've lived in such a way that just excessive wine, revelings, banquetings, those are sort of like, uh, um, what's the word, drinking parties, that's why I said a college campus area, because this is what goes on in those areas, from my understanding. I've never been to a, a public college, but this is what happens at those places. There's revelings, that is, um, orgies. Vill uh, the, the, the idea of the word is actually a village making marrying. It's sort of like that Mardi Gras type of mentality, Right? Then there's, then there's the bank, banquetings, the, built, the, the, um, the binge parties, the drinking parties. And, uh, and then abominable idolatries. The word abominable there has to do with the fact that it's unlawful or lawless. <clears throat> it's not that there's a law against it on the books, but in God's law, it's wrong. Okay? So, and really that kind of catches the whole context. 
the abominable idolatries. All these things that he's mentioned earlier were happening around false worship. I mean, these were the kinds of things that were happening in in temples that were dedicated to false gods. There were there was this kind of activity going on, and what he's saying is that was your lifestyle in the past. Now live faithfully. The motivation is you don't need to be going back to that. You've done enough of that. Matter of fact, one man puts it this way in reference to maybe I don't maybe I didn't write that down. Um I don't think I wrote his quote down. But he talks there about the fact that we've done enough of that. Uh, It's not that we have, um, for in the time past, may suffice us. It was sufficient. And it was beyond sufficient. You've done enough of that. You don't need to go back to that. That's what he's saying. It ought to be a motivation to spur us toward faithfulness because of what Christ has, has delivered us out of. And young people, if you've never had that experience, Christ still has delivered you out of that experience, even though you've never had that experience. You don't have to have that experience to know that that experience is wrong and against God. You don't have to sow your wild oats. Okay, that's what I'm saying. So that's our past experience. Motivation because of their past experience. Secondly, a motivation because or motivations of their present opposition. Notice in verse 4, wherein they think it strange, those Gentiles, those ungodly, the, heathen, the word heathen and the word Gentiles, same word, just the way you translate it, whether it's referring to nations or their character. Okay, um, So wherein they think it strange, those with that type of character and those kinds of, you know, when I tell people where I work that I've never taken a drink in my life, they really look at me strange. Trust me. <laughs> really? Never? Once? They, they don't understand that. Okay? Um, they think it's strange that we don't run with them to those same excessive riot. We don't have that propensity toward that any longer. And they speak evil of us because of, because of that. And, and really, that, that, that kind of like starts off, you might say, the difficulties, the suffering that might come. It may come just because we've taken a stand and God has delivered us from these things. And now, because we're not willing to involve ourselves in those things, they speak evil of us. And they also do evil things to us because we're different. They think we're strange. Um. Maybe you've read Pilgrim's Progress, and when, um, when uh, Pilgrim and Faithful at that time were headed into the, um, what's the name of that fair? The fair, Vanity Fair, all right? Um, the people looked at them, and they said, wow, you guys look different. You talk different. You have different desires. Where are you headed? What are you doing? And you don't want to buy, and remember, John Bunyan, uh, make sure I don't say Paul Bunyan, John Bunyan, John Bunyan there is saying, 
uh, he's making an allegory there. And so he's, he's telling us about our Christian walk and, and our life and the reality of what's going around us. And when we, we don't want to engage in the things that the world is trying to sell us of their wares, we look strange and really faithful because of the persecution that came right after that. He died in Vanity Fair. And then Hopeful joined him, another man traveling, joined him at that particular location uh, in that allegory of, of those of you that know what I'm talking about. You have to read it uh, to know what I'm talking about. But uh, it really pictures this whole concept here. The fact that we, they think it's strange that we, that we, don't, we don't run to the excess that they do in these areas, these sinful areas. And then thirdly, their motivation is from future judgment. Because we are going to give an account. We are going to stand before God and we're going to give an account. We're going to give an account and he is the God that is ready to judge the living, that's the word quick, and the dead. He's going to judge us. He's going to make a determination. And that ought to motivate us. Because judgment is coming, that ought to motivate us to do what's right. All right, in the, in the third place here, moving forward. I'm going to do something different that I've not done in a while. But we're going to end right here. <laughs> Sometimes my wife, when I get home, she says, you know you could have divided that up into two messages. <laughs> Shows she's ribbing me rightly, as uh, Benneth Peters Jones wrote a book about that um, in reference to uh, a wife telling her husband what he needs to do carefully. Uh, let's stop here, all right? And we will pick up the, uh, the rest of this passage because there's a lot in this passage and I don't want to miss out. Sometimes I miss out on the end of the passage because I'm so hurriedly going through it. We miss some really strong and good points. And I don't want to do that in this passage. So we'll end here this morning. But are we prepared? Peter is trying to prepare these people, these believers, for a difficult time in their lives. We need to be prepared. We need to have the same attitude and purpose, purposefulness that the Lord had when he went to that cross, when he suffered and we need to have that when we, when we face difficulty and, and circumstances that are beyond our control. But know that we're doing it with the motivation. The motivation is the will of God. It's not our purposes. It's God's purposes. And those motivations are seen in the fact that God has saved us from what we used to be. And he's also is making us a difference. Different. We have a testimony. That's the whole idea of the fact that they, they think we're strange. We have to maintain a testimony. And even when we go through difficult circumstances and trials in our lives, the testimony still has to be maintained, doesn't it? That our focus is on God. And then we're motivated because there's going to be a judgment one day. We're going to stand before God who is the judge and ready to judge the living and the dead. And so we motivate ourselves from that and keep ourselves faithful. All right, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Trust that we'll be challenged in our walk with the Lord in regards to these things this morning. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, that 
we can entrust our souls to you. Thank you that you are a good God. You want the best for us. Lord, help us not to wander back into that path of excessive riot. Engaging in things that we have no business engaging in. Lord, you have saved us from those things. Help us, Lord, to keep them at bay in our lives. Help us to remember that we have been, we've had the, the domination of sin broken in our lives when we trusted you as Savior. Help us, Lord, to have a testimony before the loss around us, unblemished, that even as they try to speak evil of us, that even in other places, that our good lifestyle would bring glory to you. Lord, that's the ultimate goal, as we'll see later on in this passage, we know that we would glorify God with our lives. Anything short of that, we've missed our focus, we've lost our focus. So, Lord, keep us focused on these things. Help us, Lord, in in the midst of a generation that is hedonistic, that is very self-oriented. Help us, Lord, to be God-oriented and others-oriented. And we'll praise you for what you do in our lives. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.